0: This is the Epilog audio experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Last week I was talking about an auction in a palace in 1958. The point was, there are institutions which appear to be an integral part of the country and the times at a given moment in history, but within a few years after their disappearance, they recede into the distant past. Traces of their past prominence tend to recede from popular memory. Frankly, uh, very few people remember today that princely states were uh, an integral part of India. Indeed, probably a defining part of one-third of India before 1947. And everyone seemed to have forgotten all about the princely states within 10 years in 1958. Similarly, several ideas or ideals which appear to be guiding a nation in its public conduct and global perception tend to change over time. One of these perceptions was the ideal of manliness or masculinity which guided English public schools in the 19th century. How did it start? Why was it important to appear or to cultivate manliness in the 19th century public schools? Why were public schools themselves important in public life? Were public schools really public? This is in the context of the point that today in India and all over the world, the most respected private schools, of course, schools within boundaries, are limited for the children of the relatively elite and uh, pretty well-off middle classes. So how did the idea of public schools as a center for cultivation of excellence and character in children of those who wish them to do better and be more successful in life, come about. So um, there was this article in 1905 in the Strand magazine. It was titled, Has the Public School Boy Deteriorated? It created a great deal of controversy. Several headmasters uh, of Eton, um, of Harrow and Shrewsbury, and, and several others, were invited to air their opinion on the view that, and I quote, the future race of Englishmen bred at great public schools will be by no means so sterling, strenuous, and straightforward as the rest which has won and ruled an empire, unquote. The headmasters were of course unanimous uh, in the defense of their students. In fact, they applauded the qualities of uh, their students in the early 20th century with um, a generosity for which uh, their successors today would indeed be embarrassed. Um, But that's not really the point. The point is public schools had to undergo a change in public perception in the beginning of of the 20th century. They enjoyed the height of popular prestige, respect and honor in the 19th century, especially in the middle and the late 19th century. Public schools um, were not born in the 19th century. They were not really a 19th century invention, but manliness as a virtue or as a quality to be developed in public schools was um, a 19th century virtue. It's important to note uh, the distinction, the distinct meanings which came to be attached to the word. Thomas Arnold, perhaps the single most distinguished authority who had uh, carried out a series of reforms in public schools in the 19th century had the following uh, point to make with regard to to masculinity. And most of those that Thomas Arnold directly influenced were obsessed really with the ideal of manliness. But they understood uh, this virtue, manliness, in the sense that, that poet Coleridge gave to it in his um, aids to reflection in the formation of a manly character, where manliness is is, um, thought of as the opposite of childishness. It was the fulfillment of one's potentialities in the living of a higher, better, and more fruitful and useful life. Thomas Arnold and And of course, Coleridge exhorted the young to be manly, meaning that they must put away childish things and strive to attain the teacher of Christian manhood. They must have faith, they must add to their faith knowledge. And since faith and knowledge without the will to dedicate them to the service of God are gifts ill used, To those two qualities, faith and knowledge, must be added a third. And the third quality to be added was called manly energy. So Thomas Arnold and those of Arnold's disciples who became schoolmasters were appointed to schools which by the terms of their foundation were established for the promotion of godliness and good learning. Now, they remained true to their trust, to to the promotion of godliness and good learning, and yet carried out a transformation in the schools. They did not always enjoy success. Arnold himself was very conscious that his work was was incomplete. Nonetheless, their achievement lay in, in the large number of unruly boys, whom they managed to convert into Christian men and in the necessarily smaller number of brilliant scholars uh, whom they inspired with the will to act. Now, the real explanation for the success of Thomas Arnold's ideals uh, lies in the fact that it was in perfect harmony with the spirit of the times. Now, what Arnold's uh, students and, and admirers were doing in the schools parents were trying to do in their homes. The moral reformation of the school was only a part of a larger process of a religious revival which penetrated every corner of the land of United Kingdom at the time. Now that ideal of godliness and good learning began to weaken, began to become less pure and lofty at exactly the moment one would expect, when the religious revival had spent its energy and when new ideals and new enthusiasms captured the public at large and the patrons of the public schools. So godliness and good learning, which was entirely compatible with uh, the Coleridgean concept of manliness, were inadequate expressions of, of the ideals Uh, among the influential classes um, in 1850s and 1860s. The influential classes now were restless in their distrust of France and then of Germany. And they were now increasingly aware of England's potentialities as a great imperial power. They demanded a new kind of virtue from the schools to be taught to their children. Now, what was it to be now? Now, it was to be more robust, more down-to-earth, and more obviously patriotic in tone and inspiration than what Arnold or his contemporaries had taught these classes found their ideal representative of that public schools or what the public schools should do, the kind of student it should produce in, in Tom Brown. And many of you would have, would have heard of the novel Tom Brown's School Days by, by Thomas Hughes. And their spokesmen, of course, uh, were Charles Kingsley and Thomas Hughes. Thomas Arnold was still put on a pedestal. He was still greatly respected, admired, and indeed looked up to as the great reformer of public school, of the public school system as a whole. But their idol was not Arnold of fact or Arnold in reality, but Arnold of fiction, the character of Thomas Arnold as portrayed, for instance, in the novel Tom Brown's School Days. So manliness indeed became a cult but the meaning attached to the virtue was actually a debasement, a reduction of what Coleridge had sought in aims to reflection, of what Coleridge had sought in aids to reflection, and what Arnold had extolled in his sermons in in Rugby Chapel. Manliness of uh, 1850s and 1860s and later, was opposed not to childishness but to effeminacy Coleridge's Christian concept now gave it to, to, to a much larger much more strident and aggressive concept of Kingsley and Hugh Moral earnestness began to wear the appearance of hurtiness the ideal of Christian manhood was seen in the muscular Christian defined by Hugh as the man who adhered to, and I quote, the old chivalrous and Christian belief that a man's body is given him to be trained and brought into subjection and then used for the protection of the weak, the advancement of all righteous causes and the subduing of the earth which God gives to the children of men, unquote. This change in ideals from godliness and good learning to godliness and manliness marked the beginning of a new era in the history of public schools. From about 1870 to the end of the First World War, they enjoyed a golden age. The mounting temper of militant patriotism and imperial pride was reflected faithfully. In the curriculum and ideals of the schools, which in their turn fostered these emotions and trained the empire builders for whom the country was calling. Compulsory games, the establishment of rifle corps, flourishing old boy associations, rousing school songs, all these developments within the public school system during the late 19th century indicate a more rigid discipline, more intense regimentation and a greater awareness of the virtues and uses of esprit de corps. What was it all for? At the very root of the teaching lay the ideal of leadership as a mission, as a service involving self-sacrifice A grave responsibility to be manfully shouldered. The noblest aspect of British imperialism, which no cynicism of cheap denigration can ever damage or besmirch. This preoccupation with leadership, however, was a post-Arnoldian phenomenon. This is not what uh, Thomas Arnold had in mind. At the moment when advent of democracy seemed certain, that was much later in the 1860s and 70s, when the cry went up to educate our masters after, for instance, um, the Reform Act of 1867, the public schools asserted their claim to provide the most effective training for those who would be, um, by virtue of their character, Assuming the role of leaders within the new society. So um, the change from the ruler to the leader in social culture at the time, from the ruler as in the royal to the leader as in the leader of a democratic society of patriotic Englishmen, implies that henceforth from the 1860s and 70s, the qualities um, which were demanded of those at the tap, of those at the top or were dash, initiative, the ability to stand out among a group and to direct its actions while maintaining the fiction that The decisions of the leader are really the wishes of the group. It is fair to say then that up to the end of the First World War, the public school very conspicuously moved with the times. Their ideal of Christian manliness um, corresponded closely to the prevailing sentiments and opinions of the middle classes, the British middle classes, that is the bourgeoisie especially the upper middle classes. Now, they were, of course, the chief patrons of these schools. Since 1999, of course, this uh, unanimity in ideals has not been so pronounced. It proved much easier to convert Arnoldianism into muscular Christianity than to correct the deficiencies of a chord, which inevitably led to athleticism, the glorification of aggressive patriotism and a distorted sense of values. Now, the story of British public schools since the Second and certainly since the First World War is a different chapter altogether, and it is connected with the emergence of public schools in India under Indian leadership, which would start coming up in 1930s onwards. That is a story I'd take up in another episode. For this story, my objective was to present a brief outline of the changes in the core ideals of the British public schools as an institution um, in the 1850s, 60s and 70s and from when. They started sending out by hundreds um, what they thought were leaders of the British society and subsequently of the world as such. I'll be back with uh, an equally intriguing and interesting, probably slightly forgotten episode from the past in the next and other episodes of History Chatter. Do listen in, do let us know what you think about History Chatter and the kind of episodes and stories you'd like to follow and hear from us. This is Onir signing off from History Chatter. Do join in in Epilogue Media website um, and also your favorite podcasting platforms. See you.